You can't build a prevailing church unless you raise a church that knows how to prevail in prayer. You can't build a prevailing church, as in a church that has the ability to overcome situations, without raising a church that contends in prevailing prayer, as in the prayer, the kind of prayer that helps you break through things. So that's what we said um, three weeks ago. And by the way, Matthew 16, 19 says that I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So know that you have an active enemy called the devil who also likes to prevail. So prevailing is not a Christian word. Prevailing is just a word that anybody can take and use. And so Satan or the devil, hell, loves prevailing too. And so how do we define prevail so that we know what we're talking about? To contend. To engage in battle. To overcome. To not be beaten. To grapple or wrestle and win. This is what we mean by prevailing. And God wants to build a prevailing church here on earth. He doesn't want churches that don't know how to battle. He doesn't want a church that does not know how to wrestle and grapple and win, jockey for position and win. He does not want churches to be overcome, but wants churches that know how to overcome. He wants churches that have a desire to contend, have this gleeful anticipation of a fight, which is so alien to our way of thinking, but that's the kind of church he wants to build. But to build a prevailing church, you must have a people that understand prevailing prayer, as in the kind of prayer that contends, the kind of prayer that engages in battle, the kind of prayer that overcomes, the kind of prayer that does not get beaten, and the kind of prayer that wrestles and jockeys for position. And over the next, hopefully, couple of months, we'll be um, going over this, but today we just start. And so Satan also likes prevailing. Satan also likes prevailing. And... Our lives have had so many situations where we saw the enemy prevail, where things broke in our lives, where things were beaten in our lives, where things were trampled down in our lives. You look around, listen to CNN, read the newspapers, and you see it happening every day. And so there are two methods that the devil uses to prevail. The first one is he tries to ravage. He tries to ravage. He tries to ravage. And then the second one is he tries to corrode. And both are different in that ravaging is an outright onslaught that, has, um, that, that cannot be mistaken. It just is wave after wave of attack till a person crumbles because of just absolute hopelessness and weariness. And corrosion is a slow acid drip where it just keeps gnawing at you till in the end, it's hollowed out from inside. And you see both these methods in the Bible. So if you go to Judges chapter 6, verses 3 to 6, Judges 6, 3 to 6, you'll see that happening there. Judges chapter 6, verse 3 to 6. Judges 6, 3 to 6, and I'm reading. Uh, it says here, um, whenever the Israelites planted their crops, 
the Midianites, Amalekites and other eastern people invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count the men and their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. This is when wave after wave just comes against you. Just when you, this is what happened to Job. Job heard some bad news and while he's still trying to figure out that bad news, here comes more bad news and then more and then more. Where it, the intent is, can I bring you down to your knees because you can't handle the onslaughts I'm bringing. So that's one way that the enemy prevails. The other way is corrosion, where it's eating away, nibbling away at the root and the fruit, where, where nothing is ever whole. There's always a pain here or a pain there or something breaking down here and something breaking down there. It's nothing big, but, but a group of little, little things happening. And that's from Song of Songs 2.15, where it says that little foxes are gnawing away at your vineyard. Where... Yeah, where, where Satan has his ability to send little things that keep eating away the root of your vineyard. And so it doesn't matter that you have a really good vineyard, that you're nurturing it well, that you're watering it well, that the climate is good, that everything you're doing is good, the stock is good, but you still can't see the kind of fruit you want to see because there are these little foxes that keep coming and eating away. Our lives fall into one of these two categories when it comes to the enemy attack. And Satan is really someone who does this for a living. Because it says in Ephesians chapter 6 that Satan comes uh, with fiery arrows that are continuously being shot. That he comes to steal, kill and destroy. This is an active, active enemy. It is, it is scary that the church is losing sight of its enemy, the devil. That we attribute things to psychosomatic conditions and rarely attribute anything to the devil. When he's a really active enemy. If there was no devil, there would be no need of a savior. Because it was someone who took us captive that Jesus needed to come and free us from. Which is why it says in 1 John 4 that Jesus Christ, the son of God, came down to the earth in flesh to destroy the works of the devil. It is one of the reasons he came down to the earth. It's one of the reasons he hung on a cross. Colossians 2 says that he made a public spectacle of the devil and caused him dismount from where he sat and is now paraded as a prisoner in Christ's triumphant possession. Meaning when a returning army general used to come into a city after victory, behind him would be slaves in tow. They would be paraded as part of his victorious procession. That is the true condition of the devil, but more and more churches are becoming unaware of it. And may you never come to that place where you're not aware of the fact that you have an active, alive enemy who's more powerful than you, were it not for Christ. So these are the two methods he uses to ravage or to undo or to prevail over us. And one of the ways we prevail over him is through prayer. Here's a strange thing. The devil does not know how to stop, handle, negate prayer. He does not know what to do with it. Right from when this guy called Seth, who was one of Adam's son, 
in Genesis 5, right from when Seth was born, man has been seeking God and the devil does not know how to stop it. Through guilt, he tries to make man hide. He was able to cause Adam and Eve to hide. It's one of the ways the enemy removes prayer. He causes enough guilt, enough shame, enough hopelessness to force you to hide. As long as you're not hiding, he cannot stop prayer. Yeah. Any Yep. So, and in the name of Jesus, we have the victory. We can sit and announce our name. Any questions, guys? Any questions? Okay. So, here are some ways that we can begin this whole idea of prevailing prayer. Um, the, the, when things begin to overwhelm you, here are some conditions for. Uh, prevailing prayer. This is not the content of prevailing prayer. We'll talk about the content of prevailing prayer later. But these are the conditions for prevailing prayer. As in, if you begin to think like this, prevailing prayer becomes easier when situations get overwhelming. I'm not just talking about your life. I'm talking about lives that you are praying for. Lives that you are praying for. How do we contend? How do we prevail? How do we engage in battle? Because this is the kind of church that God is looking for and a prevailing church must be a church that engages in prevailing prayer. So the first thing is, guys, um, if you want to be someone, either an individual or if you want to be a church that knows how to contend, engage, overcome, battle and win in prayer, the first thing you need to do is rebuke untruth. Rebuke untruth. Titus 1 13. Rebuke untruth. Rebuke untruth. Titus 1.13. Let me read it and then I'll explain it. Titus 1 verse 13. It says there that this testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith. And if you read uh, the previous verses, it tells you how um, there was a need to refute those that do not speak the truth. Uh, I'm taking the verse out of context, but the first thing you need to know if you want to be a person who knows how to prevail in prayer is that you've got to rebuke untruth. You've got to rebuke untruth in your mind. You've got to rebuke untruth in circumstances. What do I mean by that? So let's assume um, you are going through a situation and the lie that has been spoken to you is that you will not recover, that God is not interested, that he's going to bring you through, he's not going to bring you through this, that there is a reason he's doing this, that God is trying to teach you a lesson by breaking your leg, that uh, the doctor's prognosis will be right, that your circumstances will not change, that God has meant for you to suffer. When you hear these untruths, it's not enough to say, no, 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 not really, not really. No, 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 you've got to rebuke it. To rebuke it is to come against. Jesus rebuked the wind and the wave. You know what happens when you rebuke? You put a new... Um, you, you put a new value on that which was wrong. To rebuke is to say, this cannot be, this is not the truth, stop. That's the idea of rebuke. There has to be an active rebuking of that which is a lie. So even amongst us, when I hear stuff that you are saying that is not true, I'll gently say something that's contradictory to what you're saying because I don't want to hurt you. But if I had a chance and you were not the type that hurts, 
I'd say it really bluntly, as some do to me. You've got to rebuke deception and untruth. You can't let it take hold of a church, take hold of a person, because once, once a person has untruth established in their heart or their head, there is no question of anything being built on that foundation, guys. How can you build God who is the truth? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. How can you build God's principles who said he's the truth? How can you build it on a foundation that you strongly believe but is false? You can't. Rebuke untruth. Any questions on that before we go on? doesn't matter who is bringing it to you. What if it is not received? If it's not received, then um, you just have to go back and after, after a while and try again. You just have to keep going back and trying again. That's how God does with us, right? He tells us something, we don't listen. He comes back again and says it again. That's the only thing. He won't take away your free will. There's nothing God will do with your will. He won't take it away. So you have the choice. But man, untruth needs to be rebuked. Gently. Gently. Because it says in 1 Timothy that if you speak and correct someone gently, it might so be that they will escape the snares of the devil and will come to their senses. But it very clearly says, do not be quarrelsome, but be gentle. Therefore, truth can, rebuke can be gentle, man. Rebuke doesn't have to be at the top of your voice. So rebuke untruth. Second one. Overcome weariness. Overcome weariness. Because when things begin to happen where you're getting uh, slammed again and again, overcome weariness. How? Surprisingly, through revelation. And we'll explain that. Overcome weariness through revelation. What do we mean by that? Go to John chapter 4. John chapter 4 verse 6. John chapter 4. Guys, we so mollycoddle those that speak things that you know are false. But we just sympathize and it just helps them dig a deeper hole because we give them an sp extra spade to dig that hole. If you have nothing truthful to say, just don't say it. But do not sympathize because it gives the person a spade to dig a deeper grave. John chapter 4, verse 6. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. So here Jesus has walked like crazy, done a lot. He's tired and he sees Jacob's well there. And he comes and sits down because he's tired, he's weary. And you would think that now that he's sat down, he's weary, he should be left alone. But then go to verse 31. You know the story, but let's go to verse 31. And then he starts saying, Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. 
Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? Then in verse 34, he says, my food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say four months more? And then he goes on to talk about the harvest. But here's the point I want to make from those scriptures. Whenever you get weary, while it's a good idea when you're weary to rest, one of the things that takes weariness away is to dive back into finding out, Father, I am so tired by this onslaught after onslaught after onslaught. Could you reveal to me truths out of your word that will build me up right now? Because it is always a revelation of the truth that takes away weariness. They that wait upon the Lord for what? She will renew their strength. How is there, how, what are you waiting on the Lord for? More oxygen? There's plenty of it around. More food? That ain't going to come from heaven. The days of manna are over. So what are you waiting on him for? What is the idea of waiting there? The idea of waiting is to crane your neck forward, waiting in anticipation. Oh God, I will wait on you. Even though others say that God is, does not care. Even though I'm overwhelmed, I wait on you. And as I wait on who you are and what you will show me with regard to the situation after situation I'm going through, I will renew my strength and I will rise up like what? Like the eagle. I will mount with wings of an eagle. This is such a cool answer to weariness. Where Jesus is sitting there, this woman from the village comes and she pours him water and he begins to speak. He says, ah, you have no idea of the water you, that I can give. And then he begins to tell her that the father is looking for worshippers. What is he doing with a woman who has had five husbands, who's an adulteress, who has a bad reputation, who's coming in the middle of the afternoon to draw water because she doesn't even want to associate with other women who come to draw water. What's he doing with her explaining worship theology? Out of him is pouring revelation after revelation that the father is looking for worshippers who will worship him in spirit and truth that I am he that you should be looking for. She begins to engage him and she says, but the Jews worship there and we Samaritans worship here. And then he talks about other things and as he does, he gets full man and he says, I've got food and drink that you don't even know of. In situations as you begin to wait on God and waiting is not some kind of that's not waiting. That's resigned acceptance of your condition with God thrown in. Waiting is this, Father, this is my situation. I've taken blow after blow after blow after blow. If I can catch a glimpse of what you want to show, of the truth of who you are, something will happen inside of God and my weariness will begin to disappear. This is what happened to Hagar. She's, she's lying by the side of the road. She wants to stay at a distance from Ishmael because Ishmael is dying. And then she has just one revelation that I am the God, Bir La Rahoi something, where he, I am the God who sees. And she sees that. And God turns up, gives water to Ishmael and restores her back and says, go back to your mistress, Sarah. And I will take care of this boy and I will make him a nation. Um, I think vision is the medium, revelation is the, ob uh, is the subject. Yeah, revelation is the subject, as in God revealing a truth. And it, when, when God says, I want to reveal a truth, what he usually means is, I want to reveal to you something about myself. That's what he means. 
Because everything consists in God. All truths are consistent, consistent in God. Is gravity real? Well, God discovered it. Is laughter real? God discovered it. Is peace real? You can't touch it, but God discovered it. Is creation real? God discovered it. Is love real? God is. Did creation happen through words? Yes. So all truths are basically God saying, let me show you something about myself or let me show you something I have done in the past and I will do again. Let me show you how I will do it for you. And it takes away weariness. It takes away weariness whether you're a mom who has a little baby or you're a mom who has four kids and a dog or you're a single person who doesn't know what to do with time or you're a person with disease and sickness or you're a person who has financial situations or a family that is broken. It does not matter. Revelation has a way. You will look in the Bible and you will find time and time and time and time again. What did David do when he was weary, tired, running like a refugee? He would go and sit, start singing to God. He would see something about God. Halfway through the psalm, the psalm would change. You'll see the first 10 verses of the psalm lamenting his condition saying, Oh, woe is me. Could you pour some hot oil on the guy who destroyed me? And then pour some on his children too. And that'll be the first few verses. And by the next few verses, it'll be, oh, forgive, oh God, uh, show your mercy, just as you've shown me mercy. And the whole thing changes. What was causing that change? A sudden mood swing? No. Got sight of something. Third. Overcome diversion. When we are under onslaught, purpose goes out of the window, eh? Overcome diversion from purpose. Overcome diversion from purpose. Through resolve and persistence. Resolve and persistence. One of the things that happens when um, the... Uh, onslaughts from the enemy, regardless of whether he uses people or does it directly or circumstances, when it gets overwhelming as you lose, um, you're diverted from your purpose. And yet one of the ways that uh, you overcome diversion from purpose is through resolve and persistence. And you see this in Nehemiah. In Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 1 to 4, you'll see it. Just turn to Nehemiah 6, 1 to 4. Nehemiah 6, 1 to 4. Nehemiah 6. Where is Nehemiah? Yeah, if, if I can be distracted from my purpose... If I can be diverted from my purpose because of different things that are happening in my life, then um, a man who loses or a woman who loses a reason uh, for life um, is just like a person who never met Christ. Christ brings to you a reason for life. And when that is taken away, what do you have, man? What did Jesus say? Um, What did God say in um, Hosea 4 verse 6? 
a people without vision perish. Take away purpose and the decline begins. And I'm not talking about purpose as in goals and targets and I want to be this and I want to be that. But something inside you that begins to bring hope every day that you wake up thinking, today is the day when I will know a little more, I'll add a little more to what I know. Let this be your condition that regardless of who's died last night or who will die today or what may collapse last night or what may collapse today, every morning you get up with this understanding that today is a new day. His mercies, as in his compassion-filled attitude towards you is new. That today there is reason to wake up with tremendous hope. Nehemiah chapter 6 verses 1 to 4. It says that when the word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message, come let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me, so I sent messengers to them with this reply, I'm carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message and each time I gave them the same answer. Then the fifth time Sanballat sent his aid to me with the same message and in his hand was an unsealed letter and it goes on. The point being this guys, decide the things that you are non-negotiable in your life. Decide that which is non-negotiable and do not move away from them. You know, for the last 27 or 28 years, and I've been doing what I do on Sundays for the last 27 or 28 years, it does not matter who dies, even when it was my dad, it does not matter what happens. There are certain things in my life that are non-negotiable and nothing stops for it. Is that cruel? No, it's not cruel. It's just, this is how it's going to be. These are non-negotiables and for each one it may differ. But do not be diverted from your purpose. Uh, for me, um, if I can walk and someone doesn't have to carry me, then um, meeting together as a body, assembling of the saints is non-negotiable. All my life. For me, standing up here and giving every ounce of everything I have during worship is non-negotiable. God has never gotten a bad deal from me during worship. In, since the day I was born again, there has not been a single worship session in all the 28 years that I've been a believer that he has received anything less than the best I can give during worship. It is non-negotiable. He deserves nothing less. I have given nothing less. And it is by the grace of God, yes. But there is a resolve inside. It's non-negotiable. I'm just giving you two examples. Since Acts 29 has begun, I would rather mess up, change what I'm doing, um, look a little foolish and uneducated and ignorant than follow what I have prepared. If I know that this is God, then 
it is non-negotiable. It will happen. It cannot be anything else, even if it costs. There should be a ferocity with non-negotiables. Ferocity. When you're growing up, they call it stubbornness. When you grow up a little more, it's resilience. By the time you're my age, it is non-negotiable. <laughs> yes. It is impossible to maintain non-negotiables if you aren't in love with somebody. And that is the reason why it's a non-negotiable because you don't have the willpower to do it. You're doing it solely because there is someone who is far more important than you for whom you're doing it and it is not possible to break it. If that isn't the motive, then at some point you will be broken. Has to be for someone else. That you love more than yourself. So decide that through resolve and persistence you will overcome diversion from purpose. Fourth one, overcome discouragement and fear. Overcome discouragement and fear. Overcome discouragement and fear through overcome discouragement and fear through remembering through two ways. One, remembering what he has done. Remembering what he has done. Remembering what he has done. And two, depending on Aaron's and hers. Depending on Aaron and Rennie. Sorry, Aaron and hers. So, um, discouragement and fear is so regularly used by the devil. So regularly used by the devil. The number of people in this church who go through discouragement and fear is the same as the number of people in any other church. Because this is the common, common uh, weapon used by the devil to break us. Discourage, discourage, discourage. Nothing's working out. It's been a while. Bleak, bleak, bleak. Fear. It's fascinating how someone who can be really strong in the Lord is still afraid of doctors. It can easily happen. I know people who are really strong in the Lord who when they go to doctors start feeling afraid. It's not because they have less word in them. It's just because anyone with a white coat, yeah, it kind of frightens you. So, the point is, it's not that we don't know scripture, but the devil has used discouragement and fear to bring us to a place where we get scared. And so well, there's two ways we overcome it. One, through remembering what God has done in the past. 
why that? Because the Bible talks about it. David would make statements like this. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. So even as he's crying and pouring out his soul, he's thinking of all the good things God has done. In Psalm 42 verse 4, he does that. In Psalm 53, he says, I, I put my trust in God whose word I trust. I put my trust. In God whose word I trust, I put my trust. That's what he says in Psalm 56 verse 3, where he begins to remember what God has done in the past. And it doesn't mean that God will do it the same way this time, but he knows God did it before. And the last situation was really bad and he delivered me. We don't recount what God has done. One of the ways you recount what God has done is by speaking it. So the less you speak about it, the more it becomes a memory and becomes a hazy memory. Speak often of it. In Malachi, it says that there was a book that God opened. And you know what the name of the book was? It was called the book of remembrance. And what would he write down in it? He would write down the names of people who were talking about him and the things he had done. And then the other way is to be dependent on Aaron's and hers. And what does that mean? Moses, at one point, had to lift up his hands and hold them up for a while when a battle was going on and his arms became tired. It says so in Exodus 17. And so Aaron, this guy called Aaron, and this guy called her, poor guy, what a name to live with. Huh? And so Aaron and her came and stood on both sides and held up his arms. And so sometimes when I'm discouraged and I'm afraid, I need people to come and say, hey, Jacob, um, um, uh, let me buy your burger. No, that, that only fills your stomach. But, and that's comfort food, but especially a Baconator. But <laughs> fear, <laughs> fear and discouragement need people to come alongside and say things that'll build you up. Not, not give you platitudes like, oh, don't worry, God will come through. Really? Tell me something new. Give me something a little more solid than God is still in control. Because that I could get out of a Hallmark card. Give me something solid. And that's when errands and hers come into play. Next one. Ah, I love this one. This is so simple that it bothers me. That we don't think like this. Know that you have a good father who won't give you a serpent when you ask for fish. Luke 11, 11. Hey, when you go pray, why is it that you think that he is going to give you a serpent? A good father will not give you a serpent. It says, will a good father, when you go and ask him for fish, give you a serpent? Will he give you a scorpion when you ask for egg? Will he give you stone when you ask for bread? Well, you have a good, good father. So Jacob, when you pray, even when it's taking long to happen, know without a shadow of a doubt that your good father will not give you a serpent when you are asking for fish. If it's taking a little longer, maybe it's a fish that's bigger than you asked for. But it ain't going to be a serpent. It's going to come. The simple assurance that children know. I didn't know you're not supposed to disappoint a kid. When you tell a kid something, you better deliver. 
Yeah, or, or else they have these memories that uh, transform them into elephants. But I didn't know this, so I promised a kid the moon and then didn't deliver. And Eric called me and said, hey, Jacob, if you tell a kid something, because he's got four of them. Uh, he, he had four of them then, now he's got five. So he said, you got to deliver. And this kid was waiting, man. This kid was waiting. And so what I've decided is not to make any promises to kids. Because <laughs> the thing is, with kids, you... <laughs> but Lorian, at least with kids, when you make... When you tell them you'll play a game with them and you play it once. They want to play it 14 times, man. With grown-ups, you only need to play it once. Pardon? <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Why did I open this top? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah, I thought you were going to take a shot at me, but I'm glad that you quoted a verse instead. So, you're on my... So, the next one. Uh, this is a, uh, stay within the hedge. Stay within the hedge of within which God wants to bless, within which God wants to bless. It's in Job 1 verse 10-ish, I think. Here's the thing, guys. God loves putting a hedge around you. A hedge is like a protective fence around you. Stay within it. Stay within it. God puts a hedge around you. Stay within it. it the strange thing is it's not with Job that he started it. He did it in uh, the beginning of creation where he took Adam and Eve, put them in a garden and said, within these confines of Eden, stay. Everything within this area is yours. The serpent was on the outside. He wasn't on the inside. And God loves putting a hedge around you. He did that for Job, so much so that the devil had to come and say, if it were not for this hedge that you put around him, and that won't be taken away in our case because Jesus Christ has already defeated the devil. Job won't be repeated in your case where God does not take away your protective covering. You're his possession, you're the pure apple of his eye. You're, he loves putting a hedge around you and once he puts a hedge around you, he likes blessing you within that boundary. But you and I have the ability to step out of the hedge through habits, through bondages, through sin, through broken relationships. Stay within the hedge that God loves blessing you within. He's been doing it since Eden. And if you step out, repent and return on the freshly slain blood pathway that Jesus has created. Freshly slain blood pathway. Jesus' blood isn't dried old blood. It, it is freshly slain. Thousands and thousands come to the Lord every day because his blood is alive and calls out for mercy. And so anytime I break the hedge and I'm out of it, repent and come back. Don't stay out. I used to do this ages ago when I first started preaching that it's never that God removes his hand. It is always that I can step from under his covering. 
It's never that God says, okay, I'm going to let you go. I'm going to abandon you. That does not happen. This is another truth. Here's the untruth. The untruth is, oh, God has abandoned me. Not true. Oh, God has taken his, my protection away. Not true. Oh, God has let go of my hand. Not true. These are the untruths we need to rebuke. God does not take away his hand. You and I can step out of it. And if we step out of it, there's an easy way of turning to him and coming back to. Any questions on that before we go on to the content of prayer? Any questions? Anything you want to add? Yep. Uh, partly because uh, someone sent it to me on WhatsApp from Australia. <laughs> but uh, no, there's no reason for the order. Reach out. Reach out. Ask. Ask someone you think you can depend on. Ask someone you trust. Or ask someone you don't know if you can depend on and don't know well, but you trust has the ability to help. Go and ask. Yeah. And let's assume this body was really messed up and broken and not nice. You can still go and ask. We do that in the world. Huh? We take on doctors who we don't know. Ask. Our problem with asking is sometimes that we are all peers, so it's difficult. Otherwise, I think you should just ask. And never start a conversation with, with I think you may be busy, but just forget that. Just ask. Any other questions? We won't probably finish the content of prayers and what does prevailing prayer look like. We'll just start one or two and then stop and continue another time. If someone can remind me when I'm back that, hey, you didn't finish it. Since no one wants to remind me, I guess I'll go right through it for the next one hour. Could someone remind me? Oh my Lord, there are volunteers. Okay, the content, what does prevailing prayer look like? One, it's a kind of prayer that, guys, this is not the way we pray. Huh? It is not the way we as a church pray. It's not the way that we as individuals pray. So the first one is we inflict loss. Inflict loss upon Satan. We inflict loss upon Satan. We provoke hostilities. We provoke hostilities. We smite the lion and the bear. That's from First Samuel uh, 15 or 17. This is, this is part of what prevailing prayer looks like, where you inflict loss upon the enemy. When was the last time 
you inflicted loss upon the devil where the devil touched you and you came back in prayer in such a strong way that it inflicted loss upon the enemy and you saw it you saw damage done to the satanic kingdom you saw it this was common practice in the old testament and surprisingly in the new testament too yet it is such an alien concept to us we presume that things are happening but there's no evidence to show that loss has been inflicted in the bible there was always evidence that showed that my god this prayer inflicted loss upon the enemy that when was the last time you provoked hostilities where we as a church provoked hostilities saying um alrighty you want to fight gisla you want to fight come when was the last time we did that don't do it to gisla but uh, take on kamal he'll drive his car over you <laughs> yeah no so provoking hostilities and then the third one was smiting the lion and the bear so let's look at those three then maybe we'll take one more and stop so if you go to first uh, exodus 17:9 exodus 17:9 depending i mean there's one version which actually uses the word provoke hostilities hostilities exodus 17:9 exodus exodus 17:9 it says there uh, starting at verse 8 the amalekites came and attacked the israelites at rephidim Moses said to Joshua choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites and in another version it says choose some men and go provoke a fight with the Amalekites tomorrow i will stand on top of the hill with the staff of god in my hand and then the victory is won so there is this idea where god sometimes would say to if he, in the, in the book of um, acts in acts 18 and 19 particularly and in other places that listen i want you to engage a fight i want you to start a fight because i want to do some damage but he can't say to us because to begin with we don't like fighting forget provoking a fight i'm talking about fighting with invisible beings i mean if you are not someone who knows the bible even me talking like this will freak you out and then the first one is inflict loss upon satan where there is damage and loss done to the devil i mean there's a pastor down in california and he writes about the story where he went up to his uh, church one day and brought all the newspapers with him from the day before and he started reading out news article after news article and it was depressing the news of all the things that were happening in their town and people started like good christians saying end of the world the world is going to the dogs and oh this is the devil and oh god come quickly oh let's get raptured and all this stuff so they they're lamenting their condition of their town and at one point he asked us he said do you know the reason this is happening is because we as a people as a people of god do nothing about it and so starting that night they would gather in a barn on the far end of the city and they began to pray every night a few people would just gather in that barn open field and then, then there's this wilderness at the edge edge of the city and 
they would gather. One day went by, 365 days went by, one and a half years went by, and they would not let up man. And then one night, about a year and a half later, while they're praying, there is this loud blood-curdling shriek at the end of where the woods are. And there's nobody there, but they can hear this blood-curdling shriek and something fleeing. And that day, the town began to change. And today, if you go through that town, which was like a place that people would not even buy land, it's a land that is doing well. Older couples go there to retire because it's that peaceful. Inflict loss. There was a situation at Acts 29, which some of you may remember, where someone in this church brought us a prayer request on a Sunday morning and said that a friend of his had gone and eaten from a temple in India. And he'd eaten from a temple in India. And now he was a, he was, he was a Christian, eaten from a temple in India. And because of some demonic possession, literally started writing around like a snake, trying to climb up the wall like a snake. And that morning, this man gets a call from the boy's mother saying, can you please pray? And as we began to pray that morning, this boy began to get set free 12,000 kilometers away. Inflict loss. Inflict loss. Where, where things, uh, it, it, I mean, the, the story that I just told you is uh, not so much as a loss as a deliverance. I'm talking about pay, the devil paying a price for doing harm. I remember Graham Cook going up to um, the city council that was denying him an application to set up a um, um, place that would help the poor and the downcast. And he kept going back with the application saying, I'd like to do it right. Here is everything you need. And they kept rejecting it, kept rejecting it. And then he goes in one day to the city council somewhere in the UK and he says to them, I have brought you everything you need and I've brought the documents. I've done everything you've asked me to. I've done it three, four, five times. And now I want you to know that you have no reason to deny me permission. And I want you to know this. If this is denied, every embezzlement in this room Every adulterous relationship, every form of corruption practiced by anyone in this room will be exposed over the next week by my God. So either go ahead and grant this document and release it to me or know what's going to happen. He got permission within minutes. But how do you get to a point where you are so sure of praying like this? You see how poor we are in that. How poor we are in that. We don't know how to. Some of the things that are happening in India based on the letter that was read and some of the other things that are happening are causing actual loss and damage. I remember showing you bullets being fired at this guy who runs this conference. Some of the stories are untellable, guys, because it, it, so, it is, on one hand, scary, on the other hand, will freak you out.
God wants to make us a church like the smite the lion and the bear is another thing that David would practice. David said in 1 Samuel 17 that listen Saul, Saul is trying to put his armor on David and David says, "Now Saul, I don't want your armor. Why David? Because I've learned how to use just stick and stone because when I would be in the field and there would be a lion or a bear that would come towards me and try to take one of the sheep, I would smite it. And if it didn't release the sheep, I would go grab its jaws, pull it open, pull out the sheep and smite it so hard that it would learn a lesson. When was the last time you prayed? And if you pray this, make sure that you don't pray it out of presumption, but pray it out of absolute faith that Satan, if you do this again, I will cause the smiting of God to fall upon you. But the thing is, you got to make sure that you can follow through and you know how to follow through. I remember once a guy in front of me who was driving slow and um, I honked and he gave me the finger and I started following him thinking he was a small guy. And then he stopped and he got out of the car and I rolled up my windows. Because I thought to myself, oops, this is not one of the, this is not a fight I want to go through. I rolled up the window and I said, it's okay, it's okay. And I went off on the side. If we begin to take this on, you got to know that you can see through. Otherwise, out of the car will come a guy who's twice your size. So I'm not saying, let's go and do this. I'm saying, look at what awaits us and look at where we are. I was thinking of all the stories I could tell of these three. And one day I will. I just wanted to write it down accurately and then read it out so that it's not piecemeal because I don't want to exaggerate. One of the things that you've got to be careful of whenever you talk about any victory over the devil is that you do not exaggerate because he's a liar, a thief, and a murderer. And so when you tell stories of what God has done, and when you tell stories of how the devil was defeated, it is very easy to add a little here and there. And that's exactly what he's looking for. Because if in your testimony of what you have done, you can add lies, then it plays straight into the hand of the one you're trying to defeat. This is why when I was driving, I was thinking of different stories. And I thought, Father, I've got to make sure every one of them is exactly what I saw and not presumption that this could have happened or this may have happened, no. We don't realize sometimes that when we tell a story, the moment you add exaggeration to it, it thrills the crowd, but it impoverishes the work of the spirit in the crowd. There can be no presumption in your stories. And then I believe God did this. No, if you didn't see it, then you can only say, I'm praying that God would have done that. I don't know for sure. So we look at this and then let's touch on one and then stop. Let me see which one we should take. Look at this scripture, eh? And then we'll stop with that. Isaiah 62. Isaiah 62. Isaiah 62. Guys, I don't know, you probably heard of this word push prayers, right? You've heard of it? Push is basically prevail until something happens. Basically the idea that, hey, there are times when prevailing prayer is a kind of prayer 
where you keep pushing, you keep pushing, you give God no rest. You give God no rest. But what do you mean give God no rest? If you read Isaiah 62 verse 6 onwards. Isaiah 62 verse 6. Look at what it says there. And we stop at this. I've got six others. Yes, six others. Isaiah 62 verse 6 to 8. Five others. Um, I have posted watchmen on your walls of Jerusalem. They will never be silent day or night. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest and give him no rest till he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. Imagine what God is saying. God is saying, listen, I have decreed some things. You know what I want to do. But now I want you to get up and stand like watchmen on the wall and do not give me rest, nor do you take a rest till this comes through. He's literally saying, come and press into me and press into what I've already decreed. He's not, uh, because it's, it's not like God, uh, what are we asking, uh, what, what is God asking us to do? God is saying, hey, don't give me any rest. I said something, now wait till I do it, but don't you back off. You keep persisting after me saying, you said so, you said so, you yes, I said so, you said so. Don't let go of me. I'm inviting you to do that. When he invites you to do that, it's perfectly okay to do that. When he does not invite you to do that, it is harassment, it is lack of faith, it is being a child that is not convinced of the father's goodness, it's tugging at the father's shirt till it's out of his belt loop. But when he invites you to do that, then my God, don't let go. Yes, Diana. You'll have to hear the invitation. Here he specifically says, I have set watchmen on your walls. Do not give me rest. Just persist because I have decreed it that Jerusalem shall be a city on its own. So keep pushing, keep persisting, keep persisting. Do not let off. In the process, what God wants to do is not get all stirred up to do anything. No, in the process, he wants you to be stirred up and you to build the kind of muscle that will allow you to take what he wants you to take. That's the difference, guys. And when he invites you to do that, my God, don't back off. Don't be like that woman in the Song of Songs who heard a knock on her door. And she's lying in a bed and she says, but I'm in my nice, comfy, warm socks and my PJs are on. I can hear you knock, but I don't feel like getting up. And then her lover leaves. And now she goes to open the door and she can't find him. And so she goes running through the city looking for him. Gets beaten up by a few people. My God, you could have done it without getting beaten up. Prevail through prayer that gives God no rest because you know he has decreed it. He has decreed it. It has to happen. Guys, there are times when I know. I mean, you can ask my mom this because she sees it. Most of these prevailing, these kind of prayers, no one else will see. This is the kind of prayer that Jesus engaged in, in, in uh, Mark and Luke, when he had to go up on a mountain and pray through the night to find 12. He knew that the gospel would spread through the earth. 
He knew that he had his father's ear. He knew that his father was delighted in him. And yet he spends an entire night praying because he knows that on this choice will depend so much. And he also knew that one of them would betray him. And he also knew that all ten would flee and one would remain. Nobody sees this kind of prayer. Where you will pace up and down through the night. No one knows about it. And you know the outcome. But you know that my God I can get this done. Because God has said it will happen. It must happen. So stay up and stay through. Half an hour. One hour. Prayer that you can never imagine praying for one hour. You keep going at it. In tongues. In English. With understanding. Without understanding. You keep at it. Because you know God has decreed it. So I will give you no rest. I will call on you. I will not harass you. But I will say that there is no other name that is above your name. That you are high and lifted up. That this thing shall come to pass. That you are the undefeated one. And you keep at it. You begin to tell yourself. You tell the enemy. You tell the world. And you tell God. God this is who you are. This is what you said. This is what will happen. And I am not leaving. It's called persistent prayer. I remember teaching this in the course of faith and whenever I talk about faith stories, I talk about Kony the circle drawer. This, this Hebrew boy who once decided that he will not move till the rains come because it's been years, it's been a drought and he wants the rain. So he steps out into the middle of the village square, draws a circle around himself and he says, Oh God, I am not leaving this circle till the rains come. And there were many good Christians in that village. And they said, presumptuous little fella. He thinks he can draw a circle and make God do things for him. But Kony knew something. That God is the sender of rain. That God is not the sender of drought. That God likes blessing his people. And so he decides he's not moving. And the older people and the pastors begin to say, fellows twisting God's arm. All the usual stuff we say when we don't have the courage to trust him. He stood there. And guess what happened after a while? Drops of rain. And everybody started shouting, saying, Kony, Kony, come in, come in. The showers have started. And Kony said, this ain't enough. We've had one and a half years of drought. These are small sh mercy showers. This is not what I asked for. This will not um, help the ground get moist again. I'm not leaving till the rains really come down. And so he stays in that circle. A few minutes later, it starts pouring torrents that rip up the earth. And they say, Kony, Kony, come in. Because look at how profuse the rain is. And he says, no, this kind of rain ain't God. Because God's rain ain't violent. This is tearing up the ground. This won't be good for the crops. And then a few minutes later, it begins to rain. Like good rain that doesn't tear up the ground, but wets the soil. And now Kony, they say, Kony, Kony, come in. He says, no, I'm beginning to enjoy this rain. <laughs> Let me stand here a little while more and I'll come in once I'm wet. <laughs> and now he begins to enjoy what has happened. This kind of prayer is prevailing prayer that has the ability to give God no rest. It takes a certain substance inside us to be able to stand like this without coming up with foolish excuses, eh? He is sovereign, but my God, he is a sovereign God who is not nebulous. He says, when was the last time I spoke to you in riddles, Isaiah? Don't I say things plainly? When have I been hazy and nebulous? 
Whenever I have to say some things, I say to you, plain. So why don't you begin to stand up and give me no rest? There are four or five other categories, so we'll talk about them later. Yeah? Be encouraged, church. We're going somewhere with this. If you heard me during the time of worship, I said, there's a thin filament that separates us from breaking into the next kairos of this church, as in the next fluid time frame that God has constructed for us. And it's coming. We've been talking about building the church, now we're talking about prevailing church. How to prevail, how to become a strong, strong people who God can use both as a gateway and as gatekeepers. We talked about this two, three weeks ago. So let's just rise and sing these two songs and then we'll go home. Why sing it now? Because I don't know, this song has something that will perhaps drive the message home. Think about this, go home, listen to it, understand where we are heading. If you are part